Good morning, everybody. This morning I'll be reading from Ezra 5. Now Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the, and Zechariah the prophet, ascendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Zodak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and supported them. At that time, Tadaniah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethabosani and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to build, rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those people who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, Euphrates, and Shadar Bosani, and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, the people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down their names as leaders of your, for your information. And this is the answer they gave us. We are servants of God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our ancestors, because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chadian king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Sarius, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man called Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple of Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shezbarah came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction but is not yet finished. Now it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Thank you, Ella. One of the things that I love about our church is we get scripture readers from all ages up here. It just shows the demographic of our church. You know, we're, we're a church that, that has people from all different ages, and we think that's a real blessing. We've got people as young as Ella uh, to, I don't know, I won't go there. So my wife and I have a, there's a family rule in the Hanley, in the Hanley household. 
uh, and that is that daddy is not allowed to use a hammer except under strict supervision. And I've, I've shared this story before with you. It's a good one, so I'll tell it again. And, and it sort of stemmed out of this experience about 10 years ago. I guess it was probably 10 years ago. Uh, my, I, was, I had just bought a, a condominium. And my wife was, well, she wasn't my wife at that time. She was, we were dating. And she was helping me to get, kind of get it ready. You know, it needed some repainting and that kind of stuff. And so we were taking the doors off of the hinges so that we could paint them, you know, better. And, and so I was trying to get one of the pins out of the hinges, one of the hinges in the door. And I, I had a hammer that I had actually just bought this hammer like two hours before. And, and so I was trying to get, and I was using the claw, I think it was the claw, whatever it's called, to try to, you know, lock the pin and pull it out, right? And so I'm just, I'm just pulling, and it's just, this, this thing would not come out. I just pull as hard as I can, and finally the pin just springs free and hits the ceiling. And, of course, all that force, you know, that was being held by that pin then was released, and a hammer came up. Now, the claw, fortunately, the claw did not hit me, but the butt end of the hammer just smacked me right between the eyes, and I actually have a scratch on my nose right now that is almost where it was. It's like God wanted me to tell this story or something like that. Anyway, so right, right here, and, and I fall to the ground, right? And, uh, you know, my lovely wife, she did what any loving girlfriend would do. She laughed hysterically, right? <laughs> Just laughing hysterically. She has always found my misfortune to be comical to her. Anyway, so uh, she's laughing until she realizes that there is just blood just kind of gushing from my forehead. And this, this is when it's really, uh, I think the Lord knew that I was going to have issues like this, which is why my brother is a surgeon. And so <laughs> we drove to my brother's house. He actually sewed me up on his kitchen counter, uh, fixed it, so it was all done in, in the family. But what came out of that was this rule that, that Kevin is not allowed to use, you know, heavy tools, anything that could be dangerous without strict supervision. And the interesting thing about this, though, is that what I have discovered is that that preachers in general often are not very handy. That there's something like the, the preaching gene and the, the renovating gene, they, they're op, they don't go well together. I don't know what they conflict. I mean, you got some. you got some that are kind of, they can do it all. But as I run into other preachers, I find this to be a common theme. Even we were out in Colorado visiting a, a friend of mine and his church, and he's a, he's a preacher. And, and he, we have joked for years about how just inept we are at, at doing things around the house. We end up hurting our, usually ourselves if we try. And this seems to be a common theme among preachers that they seem to be inept when it comes to building things. Now hold on to that insight because I actually think that that insight will help to unpack something very significant that is beneath the surface of this passage. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Ezra, and it's a, a series entitled Come Back. And the whole point of this series is that, that, that the, the book of Ezra is an invitation for our souls to return to God. That just as for the Israelites, the book of Ezra records this invitation from God for the people of Israel to return from Babylon, to return back to the promised land. For us, reading it in light of the coming of Christ, 
uh, who is the, the, the cornerstone of the true temple, the, the, the fulfillment of everything that the temple language in the Old Testament talks about. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the cornerstone. And then we, we through faith in him, become the very stones of that temple. And so our, our soul, this is an invitation for our souls to come back to God to rebuild our souls as the temple, as the very place where God's spirit resides. And so I've been encouraging you in this season to participate in various rebuilding activities, uh, whether it's devoting more time to simply studying and meditating on the word or spending time in prayer or fasting or confession or worship. And, and all of these things just simply as a way to rebuild our souls as a place where the very spirit of God can, can come and reside. And, and last week... Last week, we talked about how, while we're doing this, we are likely to face opposition. We are likely to face spiritual opposition. And in the same way that in chapter 4, and then you see also here chapter 5, the Israelites faced opposition with regards to building the actual temple. And so we saw that back in, in chapter 4, what happened was, is that they faced opposition. It ended up being, to make a long story short, the Persian Empire told them they couldn't couldn't build anymore, and so they put the building to a halt. And that's how chapter 4 ended. And so I talked about how we're going to face spiritual opposition. But, but this is one of these classic examples where, devotionally, you've got to read things in light of the whole story, right? So if I had just, because really what happened was last week, I kind of moved beyond chapter 4 is really what I did. Because chapter 4, it just ends. Like, okay, sorry, can't rebuild the temple. And so if I had preached a sermon like that, if I'd been like, yeah, so sorry, you're going to try to pursue God and, and you're going to meet resistance and sometimes it's just going to stop. Have a great week, right? I mean, you know, that's not really all that enticing. So I, I realize you've got to fit it into the overarching narrative and that's why I said at the end of last week's message that God won't leave you. He won't leave you behind. He won't leave you... Uh, he won't leave you uh, suffering from that opposition, that that, that temptation that has come upon you, as, as Leoni was even just saying this morning, that he doesn't give us anything that we can't handle. What we mean by that is he doesn't give us anything that really he can't handle through us when we trust in him. And so then I, I talked about how God's not going to leave you behind. He will seek you out. He will pull you out of that. And, and, and that's, actually, that's what happens, you see, here in chapter 5, is that he raises up leaders, is what he does. He raises up these leaders to come and help to, to initiate this, this rebuilding process. And, and these leaders, you see, anytime you see deliverance in the Old Testament, God raises up a deliverer, we know it ultimately points to Jesus, that he is the ultimate deliverer. And that just as they came and, and delivered the Israelites from this opposition they were facing, this political opposition, and they came and worked to help re- start the rebuilding process again, so also Christ will come and work in our hearts and our lives and enable us to overcome that temptation. So the reality is, and that's really you know, what happens here in, in chapter 5. That's pretty much what it is. So the truth is, it would have been very easy for me to skip over chapter 5. It would have been very easy to skip over it because really I kind of touched on the main point on the surface of this passage last week. But there's something beneath the surface of this passage that I think is incredibly important. Because you see, there, there's, a, there's kind of a mystery going on in this passage that emerges in the first few verses. It's not really all that mysterious. Just get ready. Okay, here it is. Verse 1. Now, Haggai, the prophet... And Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, 
prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who is over them. Okay, now let's just talk about prophets here for a minute. They're prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. What was a prophet? Uh, well, there's a lot that we could say about that, but I, I would say, then here's the, here's the thing. Roughly speaking, prophets were the preachers of Old Testament times. Prophets were the preachers of the Old Testament times, and they, they delivered the word of God to the people, right? In, in a different sense, but that's kind of what I'm taking, the word of God here and delivering it to you as a preacher. And prophets, in a similar sort of sense, different, but just generally speaking, they delivered the word of God to the people. So they were the preachers of that day. Okay, now hold on to that, hold on to that, and remember the insight that I started this message with, okay? Because then you're going to notice this here in verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of uh, Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. The, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were helping them rebuild the temple. I mean, are, what, I mean, am I to imagine here Haggai and Zechariah getting out their hammers? Right? This, is not, this does not sound like a very good idea. Now, maybe I'm being anachronistic. You know, maybe back then, you know, everybody knew how to use a hammer, even the preachers. I don't know, but it just seems, what, like, what are they, they're helping to build the temple? Is that what's going on here? How are they helping them? Well, to understand that, we've got to turn to the book of Haggai. So turn with me. To the book of Haggai, this actually records what Haggai did and what he said. This is on page 937 of your pew Bibles, and this records the ministry of Haggai. And so what's happening in this book of Haggai is, is exactly, this is taking place right there in, in Ezra chapter 5, right when it talks about Haggai and Zechariah. Here now we're going to see how Haggai helped, and it's not by swinging a hammer. I mean, maybe he did that too. Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of uh, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now, of course, if you, if you read that just on the surface, you'd be like, well, yeah, we understand why they think that. I mean, they're facing opposition, right? The Persians have just told them they can't rebuild. So they're just like, look, this, is, this isn't the time to re- we can't rebuild right now. It seems to make sense if you just read through Ezra. <clears throat> but then listen to what verse 4 said, verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time For you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. Zing. You see, what Haggai is exposing here is that the real reason at this point why they aren't rebuilding the temple is really not because of political opposition. That's just an excuse. The real reason they aren't rebuilding the temple is their own apathy. It's their own apathy. Actually, you notice here it talks about the second year of King Darius. You see, this is a different king. The political landscape had changed. And so actually, and if you notice in chapter 5, the resistance they get in chapter 5 isn't really all that strong, actually, uh, that 
They don't even stop them. Even, they just kind of check with headquarters to make sure that this is okay. They don't really even stop them. And so what Haggai is getting at here is that the real reason, the real reason why you're not rebuilding is, is why we're not rebuilding is not because of political opposition. It's your own, it's your own apathy. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And here's, here's what Haggai is saying to them. He's saying, listen, building the temple is more important than building your house. And if we were to take this and translate it into our own context, right, now it's not so much about building temples per se, it's about rebuilding our souls Here's what Haggai is saying. Rebuilding your soul is more important than building your life. Rebuilding your soul (laughs) is more important than than building your life, building your new house with your new flat screen TVs and your new three-car garage and your new new car and your your new career, your new career that you're pursuing. He's saying, look, look, you know, you're... Building your soul is more important than your paneled houses. Paneled houses are just, you know, they, they got this fancy timber from Lebanon. It was all cool if you had paneled houses, you know. And so that paneled houses was like having a flat screen TV in every room and, and, and having you know, the nice car. That was kind of the equivalent of me saying, look, rebuilding your soul is more important than rebuilding your life. Rebuilding your career, rebuilding your financial portfolio. He's saying this is way more important. In other words, rebuilding your soul ought to be our number one top left priority. Rebuilding our souls ought to be our number one top left priority. Years ago when I was serving in a different church, there was an individual whom I really respected, uh, just a great, a great leader, and, and you could tell he's one of those guys that, well, he's like the poster child for the, the seven habits of highly effective people. You guys know that book? Seven habits of highly effective people. He could be the poster child for this. In fact, he's the one that recommended that book to me in the first place. And then he actually, I was talking about it, he encouraged me to go to this seminar that was put on by, by Stephen Covey, who wrote the book. And, and it was this seminar about time management and all this. And what, what they do is they have this, uh, what he calls the, the uh, important urgent matrix. And we actually have this slide, I believe we have a slide here, of the important urgent matrix, Okay. So the idea is, and you, it's kind of fade, faded in the background, but you've got quadrant four in the, in, the, in the bottom right, you've got quadrant three in the bottom left, you've got quadrant two in the bo- uh, top right, and you've got quadrant one in, in the top left. And basically the idea is that any task that you have to do, like you get your to-do list, is you, you, you categorize it. Where does it fit in this, right? Okay, so you take your tasks... And you put them, what is it? Is it not urgent, not important, right? That goes in quadrant four. And basically, quadrant four, you shouldn't be doing anything in quadrant four. If it's not important and it's not urgent, why are you doing it, right? And then you've got these other ones. You've got, you see what I'm saying here? And then quadrant one is important and urgent, right? And, and those are, you've you got to get that done. You gotta, that, if it's important and urgent, you've got to do it, right? And here's, here's the point. Now you can go to the next slide. Rebuilding our souls is our number one top left priority. It's important and it's urgent. Rebuilding our souls for the Lord is is more important 
than rebuilding our lives. It doesn't mean that, that that other stuff, you don't do that. Like, it doesn't fit in there. It's not like you, it's, it's, it's not like pursuing your career and, and renovating your house. It's not like those things are, are necessarily in and of themselves bad. But the question is, what is your priority? Okay, you can, well, you can leave it up there, whatever. Now go to the next slide. There's, that's it. So, so this, is, this is the challenge that Haggai brings to us today. Is he saying rebuilding your soul is more important than rebuilding your life? And I'm going to give you three reasons why. Three reasons why rebuilding your soul is more important than rebuilding your life. Okay, and here's the first one. Now, I'm just going to warn you, the gloves are coming off, okay? The gloves are coming off for the first point. Then the second point, I'm going to give you a hug. So the, the first point is, bam, you're just going to be like, whoa, okay? Uh, but then I'm going to hug you. And actually, that's just kind of what the Bible does. If you read through the Bible and you're, you're reading what it's saying, it, it punches you and hugs you. That's what it does, right? It's like, bam, I love you, okay? So I'm just, just be ready. Just brace yourself because you're, you're about to get punched. Okay, so rebuilding, rebuilding your soul is more important than rebuilding your life. Are you ready for this? Because God's glory is more important than your happiness. Check, please. God's glory is more important than your happiness. This is what he's getting at. Again, in in verse 4, right? This is what comes from this rhetorical question. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in a ruin? In other words, look, I know you're doing that to make your habit, get your fancy house, and you're all this whatever. But, but listen, God's glory is more important than your happiness. And actually, that basic principle, like if, you, if, you got, if we got that, if we got that, right? I'm preaching this to myself, believe me. If, if we understood that in our souls, you wouldn't need to read the book of Job. Because that, that is the principle on which the entire book of Job is based. That, that's the whole, the whole principle is that God's glory is more important than your happiness. And so what happens in the book of Job is Satan comes and challenges God. And the question is, yeah, but do they believe that? I don't think they believe that, God. Satan's like, they don't think that. They don't think your glory is more important than their happiness. Well, let, let's, let's see. What if I just take away all the things that, that they think make them happy? Let's see if they still love you and glorify. And he's like, well, let me show you my, my guy Job. And so Satan's like, okay, so Satan comes and just basically wrecks Job's life, right? Kills his children, wipes out his financial resources, strikes him with a a really painful illness with sores and and all of this. And then, you know, the first first 30-some chapters is Job getting together with his buddies, and they're all trying to explain why this is happening. And they just look really silly. It's kind of the whole point here. And it's a lesson for us. When you know somebody who's going through something really difficult, don't try to explain why it's happening. Don't, don't, try, don't try to give answers. Well, this is happening because, no, no. You're going to look as silly as the Job's friends when they try to explain why this is happening. And so at first, you know, 30-some chapters, and then finally the Lord speaks, right? The Lord speaks. And, and I think, you know, I think Americans, Christians, I think we kind of anticipate that, you know, what God probably is going to say is he's probably going to say something like, he's, he's going to come to Job and he's going to be like, he's like, look, Job, look, man, I'm sorry, dude. Uh, but, but Satan, he, he put this challenge on me. 
you know, that, you know, would, would you still praise even if the stuff was taken away from you? And so you were just a little pawn in our little game, and I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that you got picked out for that one. I think that's kind of what we kind of expect God to say. Let me, let me just read you what God says. This is when he comes out. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. You see, you know, the, the whole question, like, why does God cause suffering? And that's a question which I understand, which we want to entertain it, but to be completely honest with you, the minute we even ask the question, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you don't ask the question, son. I'm God. End of deal. I told you the gloves were coming off for this first point. God's glory is more important than our happiness. And so rebuilding our souls is more important than rebuilding our lives because God's glory is more important than our habit. Rebuilding our souls as a temple for the Lord, as a home for the Lord, because His glory is more important than our happiness. That's the first point. Now, here comes the hub. The second reason why building our souls as a temple for the Lord is more important than building our lives is because you ready for this? Glorifying God is what leads to true happiness. (laughs) Glorifying God is what leads to true happiness. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And, and the Gospel of Luke is, a, is written where there's kind of two sections. The first nine chapters sort of chronicle, well, sort of answer this question, who is Jesus? This is on page 1025 of your pew Bibles. <laughs> first nine chapters answer this question, who is Jesus? And then it comes to this climax at the end of chapter 9 where, okay, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And, of course, that, the more you study that and the more they came to understand what that meant, that meant the embodiment of God himself had come in the Messiah to come and do what God was going to accomplish, right? So, so he is the embodiment of God himself as, as the Messiah. And this is the question that, that now finally comes to a climax in chapter 9, and Peter admits this, acknowledge, Peter acknowledges this, right? So this is in, in chapter 9. Oh, so it gets its page 1026 is where I'm going to read from. Beginning in verse 18, or verse, uh, verse 20, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, The Christ of God. And here it is. Okay, you are, you are the anointed one. You are the embodiment of God himself coming to fulfill God's promises through the anointed one. That's, that's who you are. And then what Jesus says, he says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here it is. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. He's saying, look, 
glorifying God through me, following me, honoring me, obeying me, glorifying me as the embodiment of God. This is what leads to life. This is what leads to happiness. And of course, what we need to see here, I love this because, because right before, I love this about what Jesus does here. You're like, well, how, you know, how do we know this? How do we know that following Jesus and, and glorifying God through following, how do we know that's going to lead to life? It's because exactly what he says right before this. I love this. Right, right after Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the one through whom God himself is coming to accomplish his purposes. I love that. Okay, so we've established who Jesus is, the embodiment of God. And then the next question is, well, what, what is he like then? What does this God do? What, what is this God? And so the, immediately after he says, you're God, basically, then he says, Jesus says, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, rise from the grave. You see, what, what, what this highlights is, listen to me. God, as soon as he says, I'm the Messiah, I'm God, he goes on and says, what kind of God is this? A God of complete sacrificial love. God is love. And so we glorify God because he's God. And we glorify God because he is love. And you can't separate these two things. And we know that, through glo- that because he is love, because God is sacrificial love, that we can trust that glorifying him is going to lead to joy, is going to lead to happiness. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. There is no other, no other world religion that, that, really, that really gets this, right? That, that see, see, glorifying God, like, oh my gosh, if I glorify God, if I give everything to him, it's, what, you know, what's that going to do to me? Well, you, you can't know for sure except in Christianity. Because at the very character of God is nothing other than self-giving love. And so we know on the basis of the cross that if we give ourselves to glorify God, this will lead to happiness. So the second reason why we rebuild our souls rather than rebuilding our lives as our number one priority is because glorifying God is what leads to happiness. The problem is, right, the problem is our culture is drunk on the wine of materialism and success. Our, we're, just, we're just drunk on it, and so we are deceived, just like an alcoholic is deceived, about what's going to give them life. The, the alcoholic, they, they think, I remember, I remember talking with a, a recovered alcoholic who told me that when they were in the thick of it, they said, you know, I thought to myself, if I stop drinking, what is there in life? If I stop drinking, how, how am I going to be happy? And yet, even though in, in the back of their mind, they, they knew, like, intellectually, well, actually, this is destroying my life, <laughs> right? But their heart was like, no, this, this, if I don't have this, this is going to destroy my life. It's completely deceptive. And I would say the same thing is true of our culture. We are drunk on the wine of materialism and success. And we're like, if, if I don't achieve that, if I, if I don't build this retirement funds, like, that's where my life is. And some of us, I know you, I mean, we're like, well, look, look, I'm not looking for more. I'm not looking for more. I don't need more. I'm content with what I have. 
Okay, but what if that was taken from you? Materialism as an idol isn't just a matter of wanting more. It's the, boy, I, I don't even know if I could get rid of what I have. I mean, for some of you, if, if, some, if, some, if they took your house from you today, you see, some of us, we'll do anything to make sure we don't lose our house. We'll do anything to make sure we don't lose our job. We'll do anything to keep what we have because we just can't imagine. Because in our hearts, even in our doctrine, like, no, all I need is Jesus. All I need is Jesus. All I need is Jesus. Oh, my gosh. I better work extra hours because I'm about to lose my house. So what's going on in our heart is that, is that we are deceived like an alcoholic who, who thinks, if I lose this alcohol, I'm not going to be happy. If I lose my house, if I lose my job, I'm, I'm not going to be That's where my life is, and it's this, it's this deception. And when you realize that, when you realize that it really is deception, then you come to realize that what God, what Haggai talks about here in, in the first chapter about what God is doing, um, it seems like a curse, but it's really a blessing. Let me read you back here in Haggai. So he goes on and he says this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house uh, so, that I, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Right? So again, he's saying, look, stop using your timber to build your house. You can build my house, right? And so then he says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever ground produces on men and, candle, uh, men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. What he's doing is he's saying, look, you guys are pursuing all this stuff, and I'm just going to not let it work for you. And we think of this as a curse. We think he's, he's cursed, he's being so mean, he's stopping them. Listen, this is the equivalent of a friend going over to an alcoholic's house and taking all the alcohol out of the house. He's just taking it. You think this is going to lead to life? This isn't a curse. He's blessing you. Listen to me. One of the best things that can happen to you is to lose the things that you have. The best thing that can happen to you is for your financial portfolio to dissolve. The best thing that can happen to you is for your reputation to be tarnished. I think this is especially true for people who come from a religious background. I think religious people in general tend to care more about their reputation than they do about material things, right? So it's, you know, it's those, those non-religious sinners, they're all caught up in, you know, stuff. And that's not me. I'm not into that. But for, for religious people, it's your reputation it's your standing. It's what people think of you. And, uh, I mean, I know this because the truth is I'm religious and irreligious. I'm really both. Like, I love stuff and I love reputation. I, this, this, I think, is what Paul means by being the chief of all sinners. I think I know what he means by that. But for a lot of religious people, it's, well, it's about, it's about my reputation. Listen, if that's your heart, the best thing that can happen to a religious person is for their reputation to be absolutely ruined. Just devastated because... Because then they look to find life where life truly is, is in God and not in their reputation. We rebuild our souls as a temple for the Lord because glorifying God is what leads to happiness. 
So first of all, we, we rebuild our souls, the temple for the Lord, because glorifying God is more important than our happiness. Secondly, we rebuild our souls as a temple for the Lord because glorifying God is what leads to happiness. And thirdly, we rebuild our souls as a temple for the Lord because there are people all around us who are neither seeking to glorify God or to find happiness in Him. And we're called to go out and be the presence of God in their midst. Again, right when, when Jesus, this pivotal point in Luke goes on here. When he says, he reveals that he is the Messiah. They understand that he is the Messiah, the embodiment of God. And, and he says he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And, and, then, and then he says, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, this is so important because I think a lot of us think that really kind of what Jesus comes is he comes and he says this. He says, I'm God, I'm love, watch me. I think that's what we think. That the whole Christian thing is, is Jesus coming and saying, I'm God, I'm love, watch me. But I think what this verse shows us is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm God, I'm love. Come follow me. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Because, because there are people all around us who are not glorifying God, not seeking to glorify God in, in what they're doing, and they're not seeking to find happiness in God. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, Northern Bergen County is riddled with people who are not seeking to glorify God nor seeking to find happiness in God. The mission field is right here. It's your next door neighbor. It's your coworker. It's 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 the people that you interact with on a daily basis. The book of Ezra is an invitation for our souls to come back to God. It's an invitation by God's grace for our souls to become the very place where God's spirit resides and lives and operates the very place where heaven and earth intersect. And I think that Haggai's message to us is very simple. The time to rebuild is now. You see, it, it's both important and urgent, right? That little chart again, you don't need to bring it up, Ruben, but that chart, you know, important. It, you know, we might think, well, that's important, but it's not urgent, right? I mean, I do need to, I, you know, this is important, so I need to work on this. I've got to make this a priority, but it's not urgent. I've got a lot of other things that are really urgent. But let me just tell you something. If you don't start now, there's a good chance you never will. I mean, in this very chapter, in, in chapter 9, again, Luke chapter 9, so much happens in this. He tells them to follow him, and, and, and one person comes up and says, Lord, let me, let me first go bury my father. And this is right after he's told him to come follow. Let me go bury my father, right? And, um, and, and someone else says, oh, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but first just let me go say goodbye to my family. That seems reasonable, right? I mean, let the guy go to his father's funeral. You know, let him say goodbye to his family. You know, you know what Jesus says? Let the dead bury their own dead. And he says, no one puts 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Because here's what he knows. If you go to that funeral, you're, not, you're just not going to come. If you go say goodbye to your family, you're going to get drawn in, and you, you love your family, and you just want to be with them, you're just not going to come. If you don't come now, you might never come. Friends, we're, we're coming up on Easter. And Easter is a great time to say, now is the time to rebuild. It's, it's like, it's the perfect time to make a New Year's resolution. Because Easter is bigger than the New Year. Right? I mean, we make New Year's resolutions January, right? It's the New Year. The New Year is coming. Do you understand what Easter symbolizes? It's like the new creation. It's the new everything. It's like the new time warp deal. I mean, it's, it's the new everything. It's bigger than a New Year's resolution. So Easter is an incredible time to say, I, I'm going to rebuild now. And, that, and that's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to ask you, what would this look like, folks? What would it look like for you to, to commit to rebuilding your soul as a temple for the Lord? Friends, the time is now to make that commitment to really read and meditate on, on the Bible every day. Don't say, well, I'll wait. I'm too busy. No, no. The time is now. Now is the time to, with your family, get your family together and, and, and spend time even reading and, and praying together. Don't say, well, I, I got to learn more about the Bible. I don't feel like I could do this with my family. No, the time is now. The time is now to get involved in a community group. The time is now to, to begin to, to serve more and more in the church. The time is now to invite your neighbors and your friends to come to Easter. You know, Easter service, did you know that this is the, the biggest Sunday? If that friend of yours who would never come to church, if there's any Sunday they're going to come, it's next week. If they're going to come, it's, it's next week is the most likely time that they're going to come. Friends, the time to rebuild is now. Oh, great God, uh, we come before you first in absolute humility, God. We are, we are nothing before you, Lord. Apart from you, we are just dust, just grass, here one day, gone the next. Lord, we have no more right... <coughs> to complain about the storms in life than a blade of grass has the right to complain about a storm. And yet you, you love us. For reasons that are unfathomable, God, you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. You have loved us when others have not. You have valued us when others have disrespected us. Even though you know us all the way through. God, I, I pray that as your spirit works in this church, we would all be able to simply say, as the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you.